0: You are listening to the Catholic Thinker's Podcast, a free treasury of instruction in the Catholic intellectual tradition. Today I'd like to talk about a few different questions. Is God, the unmoved mover, intelligent? How does God understand? What does God understand? And what is truth? And to help us in these discussions, I'm going to be exploring uh, a wonderful work the Summa Contra Gentiles of Thomas Aquinas. So is the unmoved mover intelligent? You might think that the unmoved mover is simply a force, a kind of first cause that doesn't know anything and can't know anything. But Aquinas answers this question with a yes. He notes that every mover moves through a form at which it aims, But God is the first unmoved mover, so God moves through a form. But one cannot apprehend a form without intelligence, so God must be intelligent. Recall from from our earlier discussions that God orders the universe. God is not just a mover, but a mover who imparts order on the universe. But a mover who is imparting an order is aiming at something. aiming at creating a sort of order. So if God is really the first unmoved mover who orders things, well, God must be doing this through a form. But you can't apprehend a form. You can't have a goal. You can't seek a purpose without intelligence. So God must be intelligent. Another principle that Aquinas would appeal to is the principle that effects cannot be greater than their causes, but clearly there are intelligent effects in the world. That is to say, there are creatures like you and me, and so their ultimate cause must also be intelligent. If Aquinas is right that God has every perfection, and if it's true that intelligence is a perfection, well, then God must be intelligent. And whatever is ordered is the result of intelligence. But we see that there is an order found in nature, which is not caused by itself, but which it requires an intelligence to to impart its order. And the ultimate orderer of the universe is, as it were, God, the unmoved mover, the first cause. So if any of these arguments are correct, then the unmoved mover, the first cause, the necessary being, must be intelligent. But now a new problem arises. How could it be that God understands? We talked before about God as the uncaused cause of being a pure actuality, having no potency at all. But this seems to cause great problems for the idea that God is intelligent. So we come to understand things by being open and receptive to them. If I want to understand what's written in the book, I've got to open the book up and read the letters there. My eyes have to be receptive to what's on the page. If I want to hear something on the radio, again, I have to listen to it. My ears have to be open and receptive to receiving the information. And so when we learn things, we come to understand these things by being open and receptive but God is not open. That is to say, God is absolutely perfect and fully actualized and doesn't have potency. So if that's right, God is not receptive because God has no passive potency whatsoever. God can't change. So how could the unmoved mover move from not understanding to understanding? So these questions raise uh, problems for Aquinas' understanding of who God is, it seems that either God is not intelligent, but then Aquinas provided a number of reasons for thinking God is intelligent, or maybe Aquinas is wrong about God's nature, that God in fact is a being like us that's composed of act and potency. So how does Aquinas get out of these difficulties? Well, Aquinas seeks to answer the question, how does God understand? And his answer is, Uh, quite amazing. As you'd expect, the way God understands is quite different than the way that human beings understand. So, according to Aquinas, God's act of understanding is his essence. For us human beings, our essence is not the same as our act of understanding. So, I existed as a one-year-old, but as a one-year-old, you might say I understood very little, if anything. So we can exist and not understand anything. But what Aquinas is saying here is that God's very essence is God's act of understanding, and God's act of understanding is his essence. Now, God is unchangeable, and so his understanding must also be unchangeable. So God is very different than we are. We go from not knowing to knowing. We learn things. But God doesn't change, and so God doesn't go from not knowing to knowing. God knows everything that God knows in an unchangeable way. God's mind, in other words, is not part of a composed being, but is the entirety of the divine being. And the way God understands, Aquinas says, is through nothing other than his essence. So we understand through our senses— I begin to understand things through seeing things, through hearing things, through tasting things. But God, Aquinas says, understands through his essence. If his understanding were through something other than his essence, well, then God would be in potency to that other thing. But as we saw before, God lacks all potency and so does not understand through anything other than his own essence. So on Thomas's view, God's knowledge and human knowledge are radically distinct. God understands all things at once. This is obviously very different than how we understand things. If we're reading a book, we understand the first line of the book and then the next line and so on. And we understand one thing after the other in time. But Aquinas' idea is that God understands all things together at once. And this can be uh, challenging to understand, but this little analogy might help a little bit. When I first started to read, I would sound out each letter and then slowly put together a word. So I might sound out uh, the sentence, Pat hit the ball and you know, it took take me a while to figure out what the P, what sound that made and what sound the A makes, what sound the T makes and then blend them all together and you get the word Pat. Now, once I became a better reader, I could read the whole word Pat all at once. And I've actually taken a speed reading course, so I could probably read the whole sentence, Pat hit the ball all at once, right? Three words all at once. Now, if I were a champion speed reader, I could read not three words, but maybe 10 words or 12 words or even more words all at once, all in one act of understanding, I would take it all in. So imagine a super powerful intellect that could read all the words of a book all at once in one act of understanding. Well, on Aquinas' view, God is something even beyond the super powerful reader. God understands all things that are present to us, all things that are past to us, all things that are future to us, all in one eternal act of understanding. And this is obviously very different than us. We understand one thing at a time. We understand this book, and then we put it down and pick up a different book and then put that down and then listen to the radio. So our understanding is uh, sequential. God's knowledge also differs from ours in that uh, it is not discursive or habitual. And discursive means moving from one thing to the other. So in human understanding, we can go from, say, the premise, all men are mortal, and the premise, Socrates is a man, and then concludes Socrates is mortal. We move from one premise to the next. And we also have habitual knowledge. So I wasn't thinking about my mom's birthday, but then all of a sudden I started thinking about that. And so that kind of knowledge, like when your mom is born or what your middle name is or where your toothbrush is, presumably you weren't thinking about any of those things until I mentioned them. You didn't know them, but you didn't know them actually you knew them only habitually. And so Aquinas thinks that God's knowledge is very different than that. It's not discursive, because to have discursive knowledge requires that you go from potentially knowing something to actually knowing something. And as we said, God's knowledge is not like that. And it's also not habitual, because habitual knowledge is potentially something that you're thinking about actually. And so God's knowledge is very different than our own. Our knowledge is discursive and habitual, whereas God's knowledge is is not. God also does not understand by composing and dividing, but we do. So sometimes we compose, we put two things together, all men, and we put that together with our mortal. And sometimes we divide and we say, no man is 25 feet tall. Um, God doesn't understand in that sort of way, by composing and dividing. God's understanding is in one eternal act that isn't brought about by composing and dividing, which of course are a number of acts. So, what does God understand? Well, first of all, Aquinas says God understands himself perfectly. Why? Well, remember, I I said that God's understanding is God's essence. So, there's a perfect unity between God's mind and God's reality. And so God, first of all, understands himself perfectly. Understanding is a unity of the one understanding and the one being understood. So if I understand you, that means there's a unity between me, who's understanding, and the thing being understood, namely you. So understanding is a kind of unity between the mind and some reality. And God perfectly understands himself because there's a perfect unity between God's mind and God's essence. In fact, God's mind is God's essence. So Aquinas holds that God primarily and essentially knows only himself. He is knowing himself primarily and essentially because before there was anything even created, God knew himself. God has always been a knower. And one of the reasons he thinks this is that he says the thing understood is the perfection of the one understanding. That is to say, if I really know something, if I know that two plus two is four, if I know that force equals mass times acceleration, that perfects me. I'm better off knowing truths about the world. So if God didn't understand through his intellect, then he would be perfected by something other than himself, something more noble than he is. But on Aquinas' view, nothing is more noble than God. So God is not perfected by something outside of himself. Now, Aquinas holds that God not only knows himself, but knows all other things in himself. An effect is known when its causes are known. And God knows himself, the cause of all, therefore he knows all the effects. So you might liken God to a, a mirror, And imagine looking in a mirror, and if you looked in the mirror, you could see everything that is reflected in the mirror. So if God is the first artist, if an artist knows himself perfectly, well, he knows the art that he makes. So if God is the first cause, and he knows himself perfectly as a cause, and he couldn't know himself perfectly as a cause if he didn't know what effects he brought about, well, then God knows not only himself as the first cause— But in knowing himself as first cause, knows all the effects that come from him. He knows himself as a cause, and he cannot know this unless he knows what he causes. Hence, he knows everything that's caused. And God's understanding is, for Aquinas, that he understands all things together. God does not understand one thing, and then another thing, and then another thing but rather God has one eternal act of understanding. God, since he's not in time, doesn't understand one thing now and then some other thing later. So this leads to surprising um, insights like that God understands you and understands your great-grandmother and understands your great-grandchild all at once in one eternal act of understanding. And the reason for this is that if God were to understand thing, one thing now and another thing later, well, then that would involve potency, because if he understood one thing now and had, and not something, and did not understand this the very same thing uh, later, that would involve him moving from potentially understanding to actually understanding. But if God is not composed, well, then God doesn't have any potency in understanding. So let's consider a question, what is truth? This is a very famous question that Pontius Pilate asked Jesus. And there are at least two very famous answers given for this idea of what is truth. Aristotle's way of thinking about it was as follows. To say of what is, that it is not, or of what is not, that it is, is false. While to say of what is that it is, and of what is not that it is not, is true. So that he who says of anything that it is or that it is not will say either what is true or what is false. You might boil those words down to saying that truth is a correspondence uh, between what you say and the reality that you're talking about. Another famous understanding of what truth is, is given by William James, that truth is only the expedient in our way of thinking. Truth is, in other words, whatever is useful, not something that corresponds to reality necessarily. Now, William James, of course, wrote after the time of Aquinas, but I think Aquinas would reject this way of understanding what the truth is. And part of the reason I think he'd reject this is that it's possible to have useful but false beliefs. So for instance, most people believe they are above average on desirable traits like intelligence, friendliness, and sincerity. But of course, most people can't be above average, right? Most people are average. And yet this useful, or this false belief might nevertheless be useful. It might be useful in terms of uh, survival of the species, for most people to believe they're above average in desirable traits. And likewise, 93% of US drivers think they're in the top 50% of drivers. And so obviously 93% of drivers can't be in the top 50%. So the belief of some of those people is false. But could it be a useful belief? Well, yes, it might be. In other words, it might be the case that if you thought you were in the bottom 50% of drivers, that you wouldn't drive places. And that would be very unuseful not to be able to drive to places. So these, uh, this idea reminds me of a quotation from Lake Wobegon where all the women are strong, all the men are good looking and all the children are above average. Well, that's, that can't be at least if Lake Wobegon is, uh, has an average distribution of those sorts of things. On the other hand, there are beliefs that are true, but useless. So maybe it's true that you ate a banana at lunch on December 4th, 2020. Well, it's that's maybe true, but I'm guessing even if it were true, that would be a useless belief. Now you might have a very far-fetched scenario in which it's extremely useful to know whether you ate a banana at lunch on December 4th, 2020. Maybe you're in a Guinness Book of World Records uh, contest for eating bananas at lunch uh, for the most days in a row, and you're getting the record hinges on whether you ate a banana on that day. But most likely, whether or not you ate a banana on that day is, uh, if it's true, would be a useless belief. It could be the case that you have an odd number of eyelashes right now, or maybe you have an even number of eyelashes right now. Whichever one is true, uh, that belief is useless, right? It doesn't make any difference at all, whether you have an odd or an even number of eyelashes. Maybe you crossed the threshold of your room uh, with your right foot, uh, but not your left foot yesterday. Okay, that might be true. Maybe if we had videotape, we could figure it out. But again, that belief, even if it were true, would be useless the exact number of molecules of water in your cup, right? We might be able to figure that out. That would be another example of a true but useless belief. So Bertrand Russell, I think, is right when he says, when we say that a belief is true, the thought we wish to convey is not the same thought as when we say that the belief furthers our purposes. Thus, true does not mean furthering our purposes. So, if we think of true as a correspondence between mind and reality, Aquinas is going to argue that God is truth. If we think of truth as this unity of mind and reality, well, God's mind and God's reality are united. In fact, perfectly united, they're the same thing. Therefore, God is truth. Truth is a perfection of understanding. That is to say, when we know the truth, when we're educated, when we know how to read and write and know our math, that's a perfection of our understanding. But God has every perfection. And so his mind has the perfection of truth. Truth is the goodness of the intellect. But God has every goodness. And so God is truth. And Aquinas thinks this is also confirmed by Revelation. When Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So we see again how for Aquinas, there is a harmony between faith and reason. Reason teaches that God is truth, and faith also teaches that God is truth. Now, the false is opposed to the true. That is to say, if a statement is false, that is another way of saying the statement is not true. God is the truth, as we just talked about, and God is not composed. So if God is not composed, he can't be composed of partly true and partly false. If God is true, God has to be the whole truth, the purest truth, nothing but the truth. Now, for Aquinas, the divine intellect is the cause of reality. recall that God is the first cause of everything that exists, and that first cause is intelligent. That is, it is the divine intellect. And as true is good of the intellect, so the false is evil. But we saw earlier how there is no evil in God, and so there can be no falsehood in God. And this, too, corresponds to Revelation, that God is perfect truth. And this leads us to a very important and very practical conclusion about the trustworthiness of Revelation— If God is perfect truth and cannot be deceived and cannot be wrong in any way, if God is perfect goodness and does not lie, well, then it seems to fall that if God reveals something, that which God reveals is utterly trustworthy and true. God can't be deceived and God cannot deceive. So if God reveals something that is utterly trustworthy and utterly true. So Aquinas thinks that again and again, what God reveals to us to believe as true, reason also confirms as true. Next, Aquinas talks about the idea that God knows singulars. God knows things as their cause, as the first cause of everything. And so singular things are effects that come from the first cause, as we talked about earlier when we discussed the five ways. So, God knows singulars. Aquinas' idea is that God knows individuals. God knows you, God knows me, God knows your best friend. God knows all those individual, particular, singular effects. The perfection of knowledge requires that no knowledge be excluded. In other words, if God didn't know you, or didn't know me, or didn't know your best friend, well then, the perfection of God's knowledge would not obtain but we just got done talking about the idea that God has perfect knowledge. And so if God has perfect knowledge, God must know you, must know me, must know everyone. If you're lacking in knowledge of particulars, you would be excluded from full knowledge. And so God has to know particulars, individuals, God has to know you, and God has to know me. So for Aquinas, the true and being follow one another So God's being is the very same thing as God's mind, and that's the very same thing as God's truth. So God as the first cause gives rise to created being, that is to say the things in this world. And that in turn gives rise to the truths that are in our mind. So the truth I have in my mind that force equals mass times acceleration, that would be a truth that's derived from reality that is derived from created being. But created being in turn is derived from God's being, from God's mind, from God's truth. So the divine truth, you might say, is the ultimate foundation of the truths that exist in our mind. And that's why Aquinas thinks that there can never be any contradiction between the truths that we understand here in this world and the truths that we learn from God. God, in other words, is the author of two books, the book of Revelation, and the book of nature, and since God doesn't contradict himself, there can never be a contradiction between those two books. And you might say, well, why can't God contradict himself? Well, God can't contradict himself because God doesn't have various parts. We can contradict ourselves. We might be like Walt Whitman and say, so I contradict myself. I contain multitudes. But God, if God is not composed, doesn't have different parts that could be in contradiction to each other. And so for Aquinas, God's being gives rise to created being, which gives rise to the truths in our mind. And those three are ultimately in harmony. In fact, Aquinas thinks that God knows even non-existent singulars. So what's a non-existent singular? Um, I don't have a twin brother but I could have had a twin brother, right? If in utero, uh, the embryo had split into two, well, there would be twins, identical twins. And that didn't happen in my case, but God knows what would have happened had that taken place. Aquinas thinks that God knows what would have happened if you had, I don't know, uh, gotten married to the very first person that you ever found beautiful. God knows what would have happened if you had, died in a car accident when you were five years old. So God knows non-existent singulars. Why? Well, God is infinite perfection, as we talked about earlier, and hence the whole of creation cannot reflect God's infinity. And so there are things you might say within God that could have been created, but that were not. God knows his essence completely. He knows his power completely and the And therefore, his knowledge extends not only to things that are, but also to things that are not. Just as an artisan knows things he could have created, so too God knows things he could have created. God even knows future contingent free actions. God knows, for example, what I will choose next week, next month, and next year. And he notes that the cause remains contingent, even if knowledge is certain. So the fact that God knows what I'm going to do next week does not remove the reality that what I freely choose to do next week is what I freely choose to do. God knows right now, and even you could know right now, what I'm freely choosing to do right now, but the fact that you know that doesn't mean that I'm not freely choosing to do that the necessity of an action comes from its cause, comes from its proximate cause. So if the proximate cause of an action is a free choice, that action is contingent and free. So we can summarize now a difference, some differences between human knowledge and divine knowledge. Human knowledge is finite. That is limited. It has a beginning and an end. Divine knowledge is infinite. Human knowledge is brought about by many acts. Divine knowledge is one eternal act. Human knowledge involves successive acts. I read this book. I read that book, etc. Divine knowledge involves one eternal act, not something happening before, present, and in the future, but in eternal act. Human knowledge is limited to knowing what is, but the divine knowledge includes not only what is, but also what could have been. So this gives rise to a new problem. If Aquinas is right that Jesus is God and that human knowledge is not like divine knowledge, does Jesus know like God or does Jesus know like a human being? In chapter 71 of the Summa Contra Gentiles, Aquinas argues that God knows evils. Evil, as we talked about earlier, is the absence of a good, which is natural and do a thing. So it's not evil if I'm lacking wings. I'm not a bird. But it would be evil for a bird to lack wings. It would be uh, something wrong with the bird. The bird would be malfunctioning and maybe misshapen if it lacked wings. But for a human being, say my legs are broken, then that would be an evil for me. Why? Because it's an absence of a good, which is natural and do a thing. In other words, my bones, their natural condition is not to be broken. uh, And so I would suffer or endure an evil if I had broken bones. So when God knows an evil, he knows the evil as true, not the evil as done, So Aquinas' way of putting it is malum ut verum versus malum ut malum. So think of a detective. A detective knows the crime scene as an evil known, but the perpetrator of an evil knows the crime scene as evil done, malum ut malum. So God knows evils, but doesn't know evils in the way of a perpetrator, but rather knows evils as the detective knows evils, as something that's true. If God really knows the good, God also knows the opposite of the good, that is the evil. Now, it's true that good is good and evil is evil. So, if God knows the truth, God knows evil. And on Aquinas' view, of course, God does know the truth. He, first of all, knows himself, and he knows the created realities that arise from himself. And so, God knows also the lacks in those created realities. And this makes the problem of evil more difficult. That is to say, one way out of the problem of evil is to say, um, yes, God is all good. And if God were all good, he'd wanna get rid of all evil. Yes, God is all powerful. And if he's all powerful, he can get rid of all evil, but God doesn't know about the reality of evil. And so if he didn't know about the reality of evil, then as it were, Uh, God is, there's no problem in terms of God and the existence of evil. But on Aquinas' view, God does indeed know about the reality of evil. And another problem that arises for Aquinas is that the God of Abraham is a God that has a will. It's not just a God that can know us, and that does get us closer to the God of Abraham, but it's a God who can choose to do things. But the uncaused cause If the uncaused cause is it being a pure actuality, well, the uncaused cause can't go from not willing something to willing something. And so there seems to be a problem. When we will something, we go from potentially willing it to actually willing it. But if God is the way Aquinas thinks God is, God can't do that. And so it would seem that God couldn't have a will. And if God doesn't have a will, then the God that Aquinas is talking about is very different than the God of the Bible. The God of Abraham, the God of Scripture, has a will. So why in the world should we think that the first cause has a will? The first cause has no potency, and so it would seem that the first cause couldn't have a will, because to have a will seems to be to move from not willing something to willing something. God is not in time, and therefore, it would seem, could not choose in time. So there's some problems for Aquinas' view of God at least reconciling that view of God with the God of Abraham, the God of, Bible, of the Bible. We talked about this problem before, but just to reemphasize, if Aquinas is right that Jesus is God, then is Aquinas wrong that God does not have a body? If Aquinas is right that Jesus is God, then is Aquinas wrong that an eternal God has no potency to suffer and to die? Because clearly, at least Aquinas thinks, Jesus did suffer and did die. So next time we will continue our discussion of Aquinas, and maybe we'll be able to pick up on some of these issues and problems and questions for Aquinas' understanding of who God is and Aquinas' understanding of both faith and reason. We hope you enjoyed listening to Catholic Thinkers.